and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you could join us. This week, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un traveled to the Russian Far East for a summit with President Vladimir Putin. The two leaders met for more than four hours, and Kim vowed to provide, quote, full and unconditional support to Russia, a clear indication of the trajectory of relations between Russia and North Korea. This deepening partnership is part of a broader trend that has seen the emergence of a broad axis of authoritarian countries, which have found common ground in their shared hostility to the United States and its power and influence. Iran, in particular, has become another increasingly important partner for Russia, having played a major part in helping the Kremlin to prosecute its war against Ukraine by supplying it with thousands of drones over the past year and a half. To assess the significance of Russia's increasingly close relationships with Pyongyang and Tehran, we're very pleased to have Hannah Note and Marcus Galaskis with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, Hannah uh, is the director for Eurasia at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies, as well as a non-resident senior associate in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And Marcus is the director of the Indo-Pacific Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council Skrokoff Center for Strategy and Security. And he previously served while I was there as well. Uh, in the U.S. government for nearly 20 years, uh, including as the National Intelligence Officer for North Korea. All right, Marcus, I want to start with you, given the headlines, given the news, uh, given this big meeting between Putin and Kim. Um, tell us a little bit about how this looks from the North Korean perspective. I mean, I think it's fairly clear what's happening from Putin's perspective. We know Russia wants access to ammunition. We know Putin is looking to build this coalition of countries that are similarly hostile to the United States. But what's in it for North Korea? Kind of how do they see this? Yeah, so I think there's there's several layers to this, but I'll start with the sort of the more practical element, and that is um, the ability to overcome uh, international sanctions. Uh, and so in the in the past, uh, Russia, um, of course, a, a while ago, had voted for uh, some pretty dramatic sanctions on, on North Korea uh, during the uh, the so-called fire and fury uh, period in uh, in 2017, and, and even. Um, you know, in in uh, in that period, actually uh, taking some steps to enforce those uh, those sanctions. But uh, after the uh, the summits um, in uh, in Singapore and Hanoi, um, it became clear that the, the Russians were not uh, actively enforcing a lot of these sanctions. That there was a, there was a lot of sanctions evasion going on. And then, of course, um, when North Korea resumed uh, weapons testing and and, uh, and and was very clear it was not going to give up its WMD programs as these UN resolutions call for, the Russians actually uh, actively and passively interfered with uh, sanctions enforcement and the imposition of additional uh, uh, sanctions. Uh, and so this would mark, uh, though, this meeting with, with Putin and what may come out of it, a whole new stage where not only are the Russians um, quietly undermining sanctions enforcement, arguing um, you know, for no additional sanctions, blocking even the monitoring uh, and reporting of sanctions to the point where, where Russia is just going to apparently be flagrantly violating um, the, the uh, UN resolutions. And so when Putin says he's going to help uh, Kim Jong-un's rocket program 
okay, so the veneer might be, uh, you know, it's a help with the space program, but the way the UN resolutions are written and the way that that physics and technology actually work, if, if the Russians are going to help the North Koreans with their space launch program, they are helping with their ICBM uh, and missile capabilities. So, so I think that's the first and sort of most practical low-hanging fruit that I would say the North Koreans are, are picking here um, is, is if Putin follows through on what he says he's going to do, it looks like they'll have direct Russian uh, assistance with their missile program. That's a pretty big deal um, and, and really is, a, is a, a breakthrough for them potentially in terms of, uh, of getting around international uh, sanctions, which were already um, fading. So I think that's one element. Um, I think another element that's really key um, is the uh, is the piece of the fact that uh, you know North Korea, as a result of this uh, meeting, will really have a more explicit, um, direct international uh, support, uh, and and maybe Putin even gets to the point where where he he argues for uh, North Korea to just be accepted as a nuclear armed power for the foreseeable future, right? And I, I don't know. Um, whether or not Moscow will will uh, uh, be willing to say that openly, but uh, essentially sort of accepting North Korea as being nuclear armed and, and not even uh, continuing to pay lip service to North Korean denuclearization, I, I think um, that's something else that Kim could potentially uh, get out of this that would be uh, very meaningful. Uh, and then beyond the the, the missile uh, programs and the nuclear aspect, which of course are always at the forefront of with North Korea, I, I am also very concerned the North Koreans could see a lot of opportunities for military cooperation, tech transfer, uh, intelligence sharing. Um, and these seem a little less dramatic than maybe a breakthrough on the sanctions front um, or a uh, or you know help with their missile programs directly or acceptance uh, by at least Moscow as a de facto nuclear armed state for the foreseeable future. But these are still potentially very significant areas. And so when you look at the, the challenge that North Korea faces in, in say, being completely outmatched, um, you know, in the air, um, you know, the uh, potential technology transfer of uh, air defense related systems, um, uh, potential, uh, you know, uh, intelligence sharing or other informational awareness being provided in North Korea by Russia, um, the, uh, the potential for uh, assistance with um, it's a submarine program, um, you know, so I'm, I'm speaking here, you know, largely theoretically in just terms of a wish list, but there's a whole bunch of other very important, um, you know, technologies that could be uh, transferred and information that could be transferred. And then also the potential even just for uh, joint exercises with Russia. Um, I mean, that's that's a really, um, you know, a, a huge um, potential qualitative step for North Korea's military capability, but also one that poses some very real strategic challenges. Um, and if we have to start thinking um, with uh, our alliance with the ROK and, and Japan about potentially having to deal with a Russian uh, air and naval presence, um, you know, in the Sea of Japan in the event of a North Korean crisis uh, with Russia's potentially either a co-belligerent or at the very least uh, interfering actively with our uh, with our operations, it makes dealing with North Korea's uh, aggression um, much more problematic. And so I, I could go on for a long time, and I'm sure uh, you know Kim. Kim probably um, you know uh, has a lot of uh, a lot of ideas, but that's just me again speaking sort of more broadly about what what sort of the art of the possible uh, might be. Um, and, uh, and certainly we'll, we'll, we'll see how much there's actually follow through, uh, on sort of these bold statements being made by, uh, by, by Putin, uh, and the expectations coming from North Korea. Yeah. It's a lot more than food and hard currency, which I feel like has been more the media focus in many ways. But I mean, and I think you, you described kind of exactly the way that I think about 
This is obviously it's much more what Russia can do for North North Korea than what North Korea can do for Russia. And, you know, my concern has been with the beginning of this conflict that the more desperate that Russia becomes, that it is the more willing it is to give away more advanced stuff. And therefore, Russia is really amplifying the other challenges that the United States faces. It's quite obvious the way you described it with North Korea. But Hannah, I want to bridge over to Iran because it's kind of the same story. And I just to hear from you, how familiar, um, how similar did what Marcus what Marcus was describing on the Russia-North Korea front, how does that resonate in your understanding of how the Russia-Iran relationship is also developing? Yeah, Marcus drew attention to a few factors, uh, the missile program and Russian support for that on the DPRK side, the nuclear status, and then other cooperation. And you really see parallels here vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. But sort of let me take a step back and let's look at what happened over the last 18 months. Russia's interaction with Iran uh, intensified considerably uh, in, in all sorts of sectors, in economic sectors where cooperation had previously stalled over the last decade, so energy projects and the upstream and downstream sector in Iran, um, a lot of investment in, in um, uh, trade via the Caspian Sea, merging of financial infrastructure and payment uh, systems, but of course, most important for our conversation today, the military defense uh, relationship. So since last summer, Russia has procured combat UAV from Iran in very high number. That is something that was not previously talked about on the Russian side. So you don't find Russian analysts recommending two, three years ago that Russia might procure those kinds of systems from Iran. It came pretty much out of the blue. Um, those were mostly employed against Ukrainian civilian infrastructure initially, as we know, but are also more frequently used now against military targets. Uh, we know that Iranian personnel also assisted Russia on the ground in Crimea, that Iran has also supplied ammunition and artillery shells uh, to Russia, mostly transported via the Caspian Sea. And then more recently, we've learned that the Iranians are assisting the Russians in building a drone factory in Tatarstan in Russia, which would enable Russia to sort of ensure a steady uh, flow of such weaponry and really help it sustain the war effort uh, against uh, Ukraine. Now, one concern with this, Andrea, has been that this kind of cooperation could widen uh, and deepen to include other things. And folks have been especially worried about Iranian missiles going to Russia, which is something that have, we haven't seen so far. Uh, a, a couple of days ago, the Mossad chief said that Iran's attempts to supply Russia with missiles had been foiled, though he didn't exactly specify how those efforts had been uh, had been foiled. Um, but that is something that people are still concerned about. Now, there is, of course, what Russia is supplying Iran uh, uh, with in return. And here, uh, similar to what Marcus said about the DPRK, there is a concern about Russian support for the Iranian uh, missile program. I believe Bill Burns, speaking at the Aspen Institute in July, made some remarks, uh, you know, in terms of that already being on, on the radar. But there's a lot of other, other systems that Russia can supply Iran with, air defense systems, combat aircraft like the Sukhoi 35, where there was a lot of chatter in the Iranian press in the spring that uh, delivery of those systems would be imminent, but actually nothing has happened to date. 
but there's the question over cyber assets going to Iran, uh, Russian support with the satellite program. So a lot of areas um, of concern. And then regarding the nuclear bit, uh, if you allow me, I'll say a few words about that as well, because I think we've seen a real shift in Russian diplomacy on the JCPOA and efforts to restore the JCPOA. Russia was in the past quite a constructive party when it came to JCPOA-related diplomacy. And even in 2021, when the Biden administration was trying to return into the deal, uh, Russian diplomacy was very active. I think you see a real shift after the invasion of Ukraine. The Russians are less willing to compartmentalize the Iranian nuclear dossier from this broader confrontation over Ukraine. There's less active mediation. There's less pressure on Iran. Fewer public statements um, sort of uh, calling on the Iranians to be constructive or, you know, previously we've seen the Russians expressing concerns when Iran walked away from obligations under the JCPOA, enriching to 60% uranium. We don't see any of that after the invasion of Ukraine. And so what I would pose to you is that in light of the changing geopolitics of the Russia-Iran relationship, and in light of this uh, intensified uh, confrontation between Russia and Western states, a JCPOA in limbo an Iranian nuclear threshold status that is entrenched is now strategically beneficial for Moscow because, of course, it, it generates a lot of anxiety and tension in the Middle East region, which you could argue diverts Western resources and attention away from other theaters. So I wouldn't go as far as saying that Russia wants Iran to break out or become a nuclear weapon state, though I'm, I'm happy to expand later on why I believe that's the case. But certainly Russia, I don't think, is going to be a non-proliferation partner in terms of uh, constraining the Iranian nuclear program in this in this new era either. Yeah, I fully agree. It's something that I think I've been paying attention to, which is that Russia will be a less responsible actor on non-proliferation. And I think the thing that, you know, with Iran and with North Korea, I don't think Russia ever viewed those weapons, the nuclear program, as a direct threat to Russia itself, but rather it supported non-proliferation because it saw geopolitical advantages of doing so. And now that Russia is such a rogue actor, it's unlikely that they perceive those same kind of advantages. And so it does seem to me that they would be more willing to do things now than they have been in the past. And I, I'm really taken, though, by this idea of Russia um, emboldening these other threats. You both have talked about the potential distraction that it causes, that Russia would see it as in, as in its interest to divert attention and resources to these other regions. Hannah, you just talked about it in the Middle Eastern context. But Marcus, can you talk a little bit more? I mean, you, you touched on this with the military drills and other things. But why, like what, what, what do you worry about from the North Korean perspective? Like whether it's emboldening North Korea or what are the risks that Russia is contributing to in the Indo-Pacific? And before we started recording too, we were talking a little bit about the South Korea angle to this, which I found extremely fascinating and something that I had not talked about. But so what is, what are the risks in the Indo-Pacific and like, how does, how is this a distraction from the war in Ukraine and Russia? How could it be? Yeah. So I, I would start with the overall risk of how difficult it is to deal with simultaneous military confrontations at the same time. There's already this 
this debate, and, and to be fair, I think it is a bit overblown about, well, how can we prepare to de deter, you know, PRC aggression or prepare for a conflict in Taiwan Strait, um, while at the same time we're supporting Ukraine? I, I, I think that's actually uh, a falsehood. In, in point of fact, we're not engaged in active combat in, uh, in Ukraine, right? We're, we're providing fairly... Uh, I, I would say reasonable levels of support, and we're getting a great, um, to, to use other people's phrases, a great return on our investment, right? Um, but but I think um, when it comes to um, the actual potential for, for conflict on the Korean Peninsula, I think that there is a vast underestimation of the regional and global ripple effects that such a conflict would have, and the level of military commitment and the expenditure of munitions and everything else that would be involved. Um, and so... Even if that conflict does not occur, as the risk of such a conflict increases, it will really create uh, a, you know, a need for a lot of attention and focus on responding uh, to and deterring North Korea. And I think we should all go back to 2017, the, uh, the, the, uh, the year of fire and fury, as it's been called in the media. Um, and, uh, and certainly I was NIO during that period, so I remember it very well um, that uh, that really there was this tremendous amount of focus on on how do we uh, deal with this threat from North Korea. Um, and, uh, and I think um, th that we shouldn't underestimate sort of what what the challenge is when you're we're dealing with a potential conflict, when you're dealing with a with a crisis that has a nuclear component um, that's taking place right right on China's doorstep with a country now that that has. Um, you know, a, a, a degree of support from Russia. I, I think that that distraction, or 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 perhaps additional um, requirements for bandwidth, military resources, all these sorts of things, shouldn't be underestimated. And I want to specifically talk about South Korea. Is there is this pattern? And I even written a uh, you know a, a co-authored a piece on this about uh, South Korean defense expenditures and defense industry as a whole. Is there has been this desire by South Korea? To, to ensure its defense industry is more uh, focused on exports, um, to develop uh, capabilities that are not just for dealing with North Korea. But unfortunately, every time there's a major escalation with North Korea, it becomes harder and harder to follow through on those goals. And when you look at the importance of the uh, the, the deal um, where uh, of, of the South Korean uh, defense exports to Poland, which would help backfill a lot of the resources going to Ukraine, help build up uh, NATO's capability on the on the eastern front there. Um, I, I think if, if uh, North Korea were to do something, um, you know, truly dramatic in and around the peninsula, there is a chance it could disrupt the execution of that deal. I think that's something that we should be very uh, concerned about. Um, but at the very least, I think um, the the South Korea is such a potential, uh, you know, vital element of of support. Um, to uh, you know, to NATO um, and in general uh, as a as a key ally in the Indo-Pacific, if South Korea is completely focused on dealing with threats from North Korea, um, this is really not helpful for deterring Chinese aggression against Taiwan. It's not helpful for ensuring NATO gets the ordnance and equipment that it needs to be able to uh, you know reinforce uh, deterrence and, and backfill again for what's going to Ukraine. Um, so, I, so I think that's a, a, a real problem. And then I also just want to emphasize too um, the the risk of nuclear escalation on the Korean Peninsula. I think is vastly underestimated. We've written some 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 studies on this recently. And it's not this idea of, you know, Kim Jong-un decides to launch a nuclear attack on South Korea kind of out of the blue. But as a conflict or a confrontation uh, spirals and escalates, the incentives for Kim Jong-un to engage in early tactical nuclear use are actually greater than those that uh, that Vladimir Putin has right now. And, and if, we're, if we're concerned about nuclear weapons potentially being used um, by the Russians,
Russians in Ukraine, then we better be really concerned about the potential for Kim Jong-un to use them uh, on or around the Korean Peninsula. Um, and so if that were to occur, that would sort of have these cascading effects on nuclear norms, nuclear deterrence, the credibility of extended deterrence. Um, and so, uh, you know, South Korea could actually or uh, could be the target of uh, really the first U.S. ally that comes under direct attack by this new new authoritarian axis, right? I mean, the um, you know Ukraine is is not a member of NATO. It's not a U.S. ally. It's a very important country that we want to support. But um, but at the end of the day, South Korea is a U.S. ally. So if it comes under even limited aggression from North Korea, it will require the focus and attention of the United States to maintain extended uh, deterrence, nuclear and non-nuclear, um, and to uh, and to, and to uh, essentially roll back whatever aggression there was by North Korea. Um, and so, again, I think that the regional and global you know, ripple effects of an emboldened North Korea is whose risk calculus has changed, who's willing to push the envelope um, in some sort of limited aggression, as it has a history of doing, right? Um, you know, North Korea has a history of violence, as the saying goes, right? Um, and so I think the potential for it to be emboldened to go further than ever before uh, in such aggression is growing even if you exclude the Russia factor. But now with this, I think it adds even more incentive for North Korea to believe that it has the capability to conduct aggression uh, and successfully blunt in a response and then to have support um, and its own nuclear deterrent to then uh, prevent um, a regime changing response, right? So I, I am very concerned uh, about what this, uh, what this could mean for North Korea's risk calculus and how that could ripple throughout the world. Okay, Jim, I've totally monopolized the conversation. You know, like this authoritarian axis is is my thing, but over to you. Oh, you're on mute, Jim. So you're saying that you're acting like an authoritarian. You're kind of putting into practice all that you've been studying. <laughs> As you commonly accuse me, yes. <laughs> no, you're a benign authoritarian. <laughs> we all appreciate your approach. No, but uh, thank you both uh, for, for coming on and for what you just said. I think you've probably opened a lot of minds of people who are very focused uh, on Ukraine, particularly they're Europeanists like myself. Uh, and these other aspects that you're opening up, the, the big geopolitical shifts are just uh, something that really other people need to hear what you're saying. And I really appreciate you all coming on. Uh, and But my question, and I've always wondered this, is what, is, what does Beijing think about Russia and North Korea um, suddenly uh, escalating a bit their relationship. Uh, I've, I've always felt, and, and again, I'll show my ignorance here, but I've always felt that uh, North Korea was kind of the, the, you know, China's backyard where China fishes, you know, where China uh, likes to call the shots, likes to kind of uh, uh, have, the, have the say there. Uh, and then to have Russia come in and, and begin to bid a bit of a, you know, maybe it's too strong to say a competitor, but to, to be fishing in, in China's waters here, you know, uh, and suddenly uh, there's a relationship there beginning and, and that might come at the expense of China in some ways. All of suddenly the North Koreans have an option. It's not just China, China, China. Now Russia suddenly is becoming an option for them. Um, I, I realize that's very uh uh, superficial, as 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 I've admitted, but uh, but but how does Beijing looking on this? Are they applauding uh, Russia, uh, uh, North Korea? Are they sitting back and watching it very carefully and seeing where it's going? Are there some misgivings? Are there some warnings being given to Moscow very quietly behind the scenes? Don't get too chummy with North Korea. Well, how how are the Chinese dealing with this? Yeah. So. Uh 
I think it's a very important question, um, and uh, I think the answer to that isn't isn't yet clear. But uh, but I, I would say you're really onto something here. Um, is that North Korea's long term pattern? Um, you know, really since uh, since the the first days of its existence was to play Moscow and, and Beijing uh, off against each other. Um, and uh, you know, starting with Mao and Stalin. Um, and 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 basically um, manipulating the situation so that they're essentially to some extent um, competing um, uh, in their relationship with North Korea. So I, I think there there's a pattern here. Um, it's well established, and it's something that North Koreans is part of their strategic culture. Um, but as far as how Beijing responds, I mean, I, I think one one of the um, you know one of the elements would be, of course, uh, you know, I do think that the the Chinese are going to realize, hey, that there's there's things that we withhold from North Korea, the Russians might give it to them anyway. Um, but I, but I think a larger um, consideration too is that there may be things that China itself is not willing to take the risk to do in terms of supporting North Korea or being you know sort of open about you know these things like uh, you know just the the just kind of flagrantly violating UN resolutions or whatever. But then quietly you know satisfied that hey this is actually in our interest that this is happening. And so historically it's been the reverse uh, for a while now where. When it comes to shielding North Korea from the consequences of its actions, China's out there up front, and the Russians are like, "Yeah, what the Chinese said." Um, but but now it, it might it might turn out to be the other way, where China's kind of more in the background, and Russia does the sort of more risky, uh, more more bold and dangerous stuff. In part because um, you know Russia has a lot, you know, arguably less to lose in terms of if if its relationship with South Korea um, collapses. And remember the the Russia South Korea relationship not that long ago was was actually pretty good. I mean, you had Park Geun Hye, a conservative South Korean president, appearing next to Putin on the podium in Red Square or on the on the platform in Red Square during the parade uh, for the for the uh, Victory Day, right? So so, but um, but how much benefit has actually been wrought by Russia out of the of out of that relationship in that period? Um, I, I think the relationship between uh, China and South Korea is is far more important, and so. Um, China's maybe willing to take you know less risk of of things that that Russia would be willing to do. Um, so I don't know if that uh, directly answered your question, and I, I think I, I I somewhat intentionally dodged it in that we really don't know how Beijing is is seeing it. But I think these are some important dynamics to keep in mind too. That it isn't just the Russia China relationship; it's this triangular or or even more complex than that, uh, and this authoritarian axis idea. I mean, I, I think. It's absolutely the way we need to be seeing things right now, and I'll I'll, I'll close on that by saying if you look at the history uh, of the original uh, Axis, um, that actually they cooperated less um, during and before the Second World War than Moscow, Beijing, um, and Pyongyang are already cooperating right now. Um, so uh, that's despite their the, some lack of trust. I mean, there's there's really robust uh, cooperation going on, and of course Iran. Um, you know, as well. But those three in particular seem seem really to be cooperating and, and supporting each other very heavily, right? You want to talk uh, about it in the talk about it in the Iranian context. I mean, I think it's a, probably a similarly nuanced uh, response. Sorry, response from on um from Beijing. Like meaning like it's not a clear cut, like they're happy about the deepening partnership or not. I mean, I, I don't know if you can talk about how what China's role is in the Russia-Iran relationship, because in some ways they compete. But I think like as Marcus was saying, I think there's probably a lot to be glad about from Beijing's perspective. Yeah. 
Sure. I think that Beijing sort of historically accepted that when it came to the Iranian nuclear problem set, that Beijing would sort of yield to the Russians, that however Russia would vote on the UN Security Council, that Beijing would defer to the Russians when there was an expectation that as far as the DPRK is concerned, that is sort of more Beijing's uh, playing ground. Um, you know, I don't think that the Chinese are interested in an escalation surrounding the Iranian nuclear problem in the Middle East, just given the flow of hydrocarbons out of the Gulf. They want to see stability in the Gulf region. They have economic relationships strengthening both with Iran as well as with the Gulf countries, with Saudi Arabia, with the United Arab Emirates. So I do think the Chinese are interested in stability in that region. They don't want things to escalate. Marcus talked about the risk calculus in, in, in the DPRK. I think the risk calculus in Iran is also shifting. Iran feels itself more emboldened with its new friends in Russia and in China, feels uh, perhaps a matter of, or a degree of impunity in terms of how far it can get away with playing that game of enriching to higher levels, stockpiling highly enriched uranium. And I would assume that in Beijing, one is a bit nervous watching that unfold because you do not want a crisis breaking out in, in the Persian Gulf. So one thing that I feel like you hear commonly when you, if you kind of refer to this as an authoritarian axis, and Marcus, you were just beginning to hit on it, is like, oh, it's just an axis of convenience. They really don't trust each other. Um, Hannah, you talked about in the context of Russia, Iran, you know, with the Sukhoi example that, well, they actually haven't delivered um, that, you know, they just want to create this facade of cooperation in order to extract concessions from the United States and its allies. And so, I mean, when you think, I guess that that's a, it's a hard question to kind of uh, unpack, which is how consequential is this kind of quote unquote access of authoritarians? How do, do you know, how do we right size the challenge? We don't want to overstate its significance if it's just more of a facade and they're doing it to try to get us to self-restrain or other things, but nor do we want to underestimate it. And so, I mean, again, I know this, it's a, it's, it's quickly moving and this is a developing story, but how do you think about how consequential these partnerships are? What are the real implications that are being produced for the United States and its allies? And I realize you might repeat some of the points that you've both already made, but kind of let's lay out the case for what, what this is. Happy to start with Iran uh, quickly. I mean, you very it's very right to say that this is a relationship that is historically characterized by a lot of uh, mutual mistrust, you know, going back uh, decades, uh, cooperation or promises of cooperation not materializing, uh, a real worry in Russia that Iran is being purely uh, opportunistic uh, in pursuing this relationship and will turn to the United States the moment the chance arises. Uh, and then um, that same worry has sort of existed vice versa. But you do see from the 2000s, Andrea, this shared commitment to thwart U.S. hegemony, Western-style democratization, both in the Middle East and in Russia's neighborhood. Um, and, and so you then have this more robust cooperation in Syria, starting with Russia's intervention in 2015. So my point is that 
by the time we get to 2022 and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Iranian support with combat drones, I do think that the relationship has qualitatively changed. We have greatly intensified interaction uh, on all levels of the relationship. Now, what are the implications of that? I think the first thing here to say is that it doesn't mean that Russia is now putting all its eggs into the Iranian basket when it comes to thinking about relationships in the Middle East. For the Russians, um, maintaining good relationships with Turkey, maintaining good relationships with the uh, Arab states of the Persian Gulf is incredibly important in light of Western sanctions. I mean, for Russia's so-called roundabout trade, sanctions evasion, uh, parking assets, financial assets, uh, the UAE is very important. Turkey is incredibly important to, uh, to Russia. Uh, Russia is um, aligning with the Saudis in the OPEC plus format. I mean, there's so many eggs in, in various baskets. So Russia will still be careful, notwithstanding this qualitatively changed relationship, not to antagonize too much uh, the Saudis, the Turks, and, and also Israel. So it will only go so far. And it might not provide certain systems to the Iranians. I mean, there is a possibility that uh, Moscow will think twice because of its other relationships in the Middle East. However, there will be other implications of this deepening Russian-Iranian relationship. One example I want to point to that we're seeing playing out at the moment is in Syria, where the Russians have become a lot more aggressive vis-a-vis -vis U.S. forces in the country over the last six months, uh, sort of threatening the deconfliction mechanism there, harassing U.S. aircraft and U.S. drones. And we also see evidence of greater Russian-Iranian coordination on the ground. I see this as a medium to to a long-term gain by the Russians, aided by the Iranians, to push the United States out of Northeast Syria. Uh, so that would have implications uh, for the Middle East. And then another sort of strategic implication I do see is um, what I would call a potential forming of a co-learning club along this axis of the authoritarians. We might also want to call it axis of the sanctioned. So what can Russia and Iran, beyond transfers of, of weapon systems, give to each other in terms of knowledge transfers? What kind of knowledge diffusion might we see? Uh, Iran is a country that has produced weapons and operated under sanctions for a very long time and could pass certain knowledge uh, to the Russians. Um, the Iranians are perhaps hoping to learn more on cyber, on AI, on space. Um, so that I think there's beyond the level of material support, a lot of other things that could be going on beneath the surface that will have strategic implications for the United States. Oh, it's a little side note before Jim jumps in. The Russians are doing pretty well, too, on the sanctions evasion. I was just seeing that New York Times article from yesterday talking about how Russia has increased their missile production to pre-war levels. So, yeah, they, I mean, whether it's learning or you know, whatever it is, but the this axis of the sanctioned is is very much learning to work around the Western pressure. But, Jim, I know you wanted to jump in. Thanks. Thanks so much. You know, this is just a fascinating conversation. The uh, uh, just the complexity of of this of these relationships. Uh, I, as I said earlier, I just don't think it's well appreciated. And on that note, let me ask you: How well do you think the U.S. is responding to these broader implications in the Middle East, in the Indo-Pacific area? I mean, we. Uh, we we're seeing the, the president and uh, sex state and sec def going off and visiting places that they haven't visited, but it's all been in this kind of China context, you know, uh, but in terms of how we're doing uh, in the Middle East, uh, Hannah, what you were just describing uh, with the Iranian U.S., I mean, the Iranian uh, Russia 
working together, uh, putting pressure on U.S. forces there uh, that will only grow and grow and grow. I mean, how well how well understood and recognized is this within the U.S. government? How how well equipped are we to deal with this in the Middle East or in uh, Asia? Uh, and uh, what what should we be doing now? And are we doing something, or is this something that's uh, the administration is, is running around doing so many other things? Either it hasn't noticed, or it doesn't know what to do, and these things are kind of happening. Uh, but 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 there's no pushback from Washington. I mean, I'm I'm not here trying to paint a bad picture of the U.S. or the administration. I'm just saying, how how well are we responding uh, to this? Maybe Marcus, we can start with you because I think the thing that's been interesting to me, and I'll let you jump off on this, is the declassification of intelligence and kind of the very vocal warning, both about the depth of the partnership between Russia and Iran, and in particular their military relationship. And then I think we've seen the same kind of warnings from senior U.S. officials on the North Korea side. That's that's new, right? I mean, it's in keeping with what we've seen with Russia's invasion with the U.S. intelligence community. I think declassifying information to shine a light on these challenges. But but I don't know if that like spawns any thoughts for you, but maybe that's a good jumping off point. No, I think and it's a great place to start. Yeah. And I do think that um, it, it, and it's not just even on these relationships, but just in general, the fact that we had the first uh, North Korea NIE um, uh, publicly released any anywhere, in, in, you know, soon after it was published, right, a January uh, product that was released in the in the summer. Um, previously, there'd been uh, over a decade between the time that NIE was completed and the time it was publicly, you know, declassified. So I think in general, that this is a, a very positive trend. I think highlighting these examples is very important and it's, it's helpful. But um, I, I want to step back just a little bit and, and say I think our intellectual framework in the U.S. national security community um, and in the government of how we think about these uh, these sorts of problems um, has been uh, has been problematic because we have these deep seated biases that we found in our in our studies and in our work uh, about. Uh, the 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 difficulty in grappling with simultaneity and particularly with grappling with how uh, authoritarian uh, adver adversaries of ours who are not allies and who don't necessarily have 100% uh you know common interests uh, still can actually uh, have synergistic effects even if they're not intentionally cooperating much less have a degree of cooperation that actually could be very problematic for us and so i've been focused mostly on a couple of relationships the the china russia relationship and and the north korea uh, china one the Russia-North Korea angle is is the newest of the of the triangle, I would say, in terms of developing to that level. But but some synergies here that are very important. I want to uh, bring to light, for example, is so there's this big focus on the fact that um, you know we're preventing China, the preventing the PRC from providing actual weapons and munitions to Russia, the so-called lethal aid, um, and there's been a focus on that red line. But to your point about the, the Russian missile production, there's still plenty of chips going from China that are useful for military equipment. Um, we're going to be releasing a, you know, a piece uh, you know, soon, and we've already had one um, uh, recently from the Atlanta Council on all of the, the support to Russia's war machine, just short of weaponry that's been going on. And then, but then you add to the equation the synergy of oh, but the Russians actually, are, uh, the Russians uh, are actually going to be able to get um, you know uh, military drones from uh, from Iran um, and get uh, actual munitions from North Korea. So, th so there's a synergistic effect of the fact that they can they can each give each other you know pieces of, of the puzzle and have um, you know different uh, you know different risk calculus. So the fact that it's more than just binary relationships 
um, that is that is essentially a coalition that is this building makes it much more dangerous. And so, using the North Korea example, um, you know, Russia, you know, provides weapons technology to North Korea, say in this scenario, while China's already underpinning the North Korean economy, keeping keeping them afloat, but not necessarily, you know, providing you know the level of overt support that Putin's willing to provide. So I think that, that those sorts of um, you know relationships makes it much more dangerous and complicated. But but to go back to this whole point on bias, I think. Our, our sort of unwillingness to confront the fact that these adversaries are not only probably much more ideologically aligned than than we're giving them credit for, but also are probably much more practical um, and and and, uh, and and willing to accept risk and and uh, and 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 willing to make exchanges even though there's a lack of trust. Um, I, I think that that uh, a lot of our thinking is rooted in this sort of a history of looking at um you know say the cold war uh and and how there's this perception well we 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 missed this opportunity we could have turned you know the PRC against you know the Soviets earlier or you know or, or to be fair even in the Korean war there was this perception um at the time about why North Korea attacked South Korea that, that people were thinking it was centrally directed in Moscow when it turned out no Kim Il sung actually manipulated Moscow and Beijing into supporting the attack but but we we were so focused on those past lessons of 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 missed opportunities to drive wedges that we're we're I think we're being overly optimistic about um, the the lack of trust and what it means and our um, our our opportunity to drive wedges where we just have that that sort of chance now in this this new environment at least not to the same degree uh, and then also. Let, let's be honest. Um, our friends and allies, we don't always agree on everything. We don't always follow through on deals. We don't always give them what they want or vice versa. Um, and so I think we're being a little bit, we're setting the standard a bit too high in terms of our expectations of, well, you know, they don't have a mutual defense treaty and there's no Russian forces stationed in North Korea, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, there's not all these formal mechanisms and there's no, you know, there's no anti-NATO emerging. So therefore it's not real. I mean, I think we're, we're having unrealistic sort of uh, expectations in terms of authoritarians do business very differently um, than I would say uh, mature democratic societies do in terms of how they manage international relationships. I mean, I heard a great uh, joke last night was, hey, you know, the, the Russians don't have to worry about uh, ITAR when it comes to, this is the, the regulations on, on, on uh, you know, trading of uh, weapons. They don't have to worry about ITAR when they export stuff to, to uh, North Korea. They can, Putin can just make the decision, right? So, and we have a problem, you know, uh, dealing with uh, with providing uh, arms technology to our closest, uh, you know, allies, right? So, so it's a, the, the, the advantages that the authoritarians have in this sort of transactional cooperation shouldn't be underestimated. So I could go on, but I'll, I'll stop there. I love the synergy point. It's the word that I've always used on the Russia in the Russia China context. And I think it's right on point. And it's, I think the point is like working together, they're greater than the sum of their parts. Um, but Hannah, I know you Absolutely. have to jump in on the access point. Yeah, just building on what Marcus said, I mean, I fully appreciate uh, that we're talking about Iran and the DPRK today, and I think it's very valid given the fact that these are countries of proliferation concern with real capacity to cause a lot of problems for U.S. interests in the Asia Pacific and in the Middle East. But I actually think that we're seeing a broader trend of Russia in light of the war in Ukraine, uh, stepping up its defense corporations with a host of states across regions that are hostile to the United States and Europe. So you have the military juntas in the Sahel with Mali and Burkina Faso. If you look at Mali, the way that defense cooperation has expanded over the last two years, not just with Wagner deployment, but also with military helicopters and military aircraft being provided. That's one example. 
in Asia, you have the DPRK, but you also have Myanmar and a deepening defense relationship there. You have Iran and Syria in the Middle East, and then you do have Nicaragua and Venezuela in, in Latin America. So you do have this, I think, intensifying defense cooperation in different regions of the world. Um, though, of course, with some states sort of more consequential for Western interest than, than with others. But I think it's sort of the sum of defense support that Russia could get from these various sources that will, you know, that will make a dent in the in the aggregate. Um, and um, uh, I think another point that uh, we haven't talked about so much today is the fact that I think we will see Russia more defiant in defending all of these states uh, over proliferation concerns, but also over human rights abuses at the United Nations, at various other multilateral fora. I mean, uh, we've already noted uh, Russia's behavior on the UN Security Council regarding the DPRK, um, but Russia also just terminated the UN panel of experts on Mali, for instance. It's also shielding Myanmar more on the UN Security Council. So we see those trends, I think, popping up uh, elsewhere as well. Great points. Um, Jim, you wanna have a final question? Just, yeah, real, a real quick one, just to follow up on my my earlier question on how is the U.S. responding to it, and the and you know I sometimes I think that we feel we've done a great job if we release uh, classified information. You know, that's like all right. You know, we're 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 so forward leaning and so enlightened as an administration. You know, and uh, look, we're releasing this. We've never done this in the past, and and then they go, okay, that's it. You know, and so my question is, you know, I know the NIE drafters uh, of that North Korea NIE know all of what we were talking about here. And I think in the intel community, in the various silos across DIA, CIA and everybody, there's people who know this stuff and they're writing papers. They're doing an NIE and someone got the higher authority to, to publicize that NIE, which is great. I'm wondering, though, all of this that you're talking about. Uh, how much of it is filtering up to the senior policymakers uh, in the White House, at the NSC, uh, the seventh floor at state, uh, the E-ring uh, in DOD, where this is part of their discussions? Uh, this is part of their thinking, the, these broader implications. Or is this really something they just really, this kind of, you know, the experts know it, but you get that higher policy level and they just, they don't have the bandwidth to deal with it. So I'm building a straw man here for you to knock down. So, so they are, they're instead focused on other things. I mean, Tony uh, Blinken's speech at SICE, and I know that was a campaign speech, but, but you wouldn't hear anything about how, how complex and difficult these situations are now in the Middle East and Asia because of these relationships. And not that he needed to get into the weeds with the size people, but but I'm just wondering, do you think what you're talking about is getting up to those senior levels and they're trying to deal with it, or it just really gets up to the mid-level and it kind of sits there because the people above them are just too busy doing other things that think it's more important and it's not, it's not a priority to deal with what's happening in Syria, for instance, Syria, uh, Iran, uh, you know, th that's something that, you know, CENTCOM is dealing with. We'll just let CENTCOM deal with it. I mean, I, we haven't met each other yet, but I spent 30 years in the Pentagon. I know what I'm talking about here. And I'm just really wondering the complexities you've laid out. Is this on the plates of the most senior level policymakers or is just really sitting at the DASD level of the Pentagon or the DASs over at state? And, and they might mention it at a staff meeting and then they go on to something else. If I can answer real quick from my from my perspective, I have definitely seen that at the four star level in the military, this has really resonated. Um, there's a lot of thinking going on, and there's even 
people, uh, you know, four stars talking on the record about the challenges here. And it's it's generally through the frame of their particular command, uh, you know, if they're commanders. Um, but uh, but my concern is that we don't have an overarching sort of uh, mindset at the very highest level to portray, um, you know, accurately the level of, of challenge posed by this new authoritarian axis. I think in part, there's a, there's a bit of a uh, of concern about uh, sort of in the past, you know, the, the phrase even axis gets controversial. The axis, you remember the axis of evil, you know, speech um, by, by President Bush. Um, I think that it might might be seen by some as sort of fear mongering or exaggeration or or kind of narrow mindedness or 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 being you know too escalatory or too confrontational and 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 trying to you know point this as a good versus evil struggle. And I think that makes policymakers very reluctant to be willing to think and, and frame in those terms. But I think we got to overcome those biases and recognize that we are uh, you know locked in in the type of struggle. Um, that we have not seen, you know, since the Cold War, where we have a right. essentially a coalition of adversaries that that may not be treaty allies, but they're working closely together. But I think there's some reluctance to say that out loud. Um, and uh, and and so as far as what's going on in the sit room right now, it's just been remodeled. I, I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't try to speak to that. But I do think there's this reluctance to engage with it in public, which means by definition, even if you're thinking about it in private, it's hard to fully incorporate in your thinking. That's that. I'll stop there. Yeah, no, that's that. Yeah, no, I was going to say that those are excellent points. And um, I know we're at time, um, so we'll leave it there. But I think it's just a perfect launching pad for future discussions. I mean, this really is an issue that I am have been very focused on. And I think it, uh, given the, the depth and really excellent nature of this conversation, it's clear that we need to to pull this thread in future episodes. So um, I wanna first thank you both for joining us and then hopefully be able to convince you both to return for a future discussion because I th things are moving quickly on this front. The North Korea meeting was the, you know, I don't know, a reminder uh, that we can't take our eye off this, but as you both have laid out, a lot is happening that isn't being fully appreciated. So yeah. I don't know, a long way of saying this was an excellent conversation. Thank you. And I hope we do it again. Yeah, All thank right. you Great. so much. This is this just brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.